Uh, just a few things on the study notes I wanted to just refresh your memory about. Uh, when we started, we talked about reading through the whole book of Revelation once a week. And, and uh, I put that basic theme of Revelation there at the top there. That's just a little friendly reminder of some of my approach for this, uh, for this book. So that as you're reading along, you can, you can be thinking about some of those themes. Um, it takes about an hour and 15 minutes or so uh, to read through Revelation um, two to three times longer if you're going slowly and trying to do some study along the way. Uh, also wanted to point out that there are sort of four basic schools of interpretation. Some of you weren't with us toward the beginning. We talked about these early on. But as a friendly reminder, that's the next section that requires a magnifying glass there. The four different schools of sort of reading the whole book of, uh, of Revelation. Um, and those are there for you to, to check out later. I want to point out one thing about those four schools. Um, <laughs> Any of them are acceptable and okay. I have my particular preference. Mine's the last one, the idealist, spiritualist. Um, and, and the first two, just for the record, the first two kind of have a lot in common, and the third and the fourth one kind of have uh, more in common with each other. So um, that's just kind of some basic ways to think about that there. Um, another important point about these four schools uh, before we dig into today is, is regardless of which of these four schools and ways of interpreting Revelation you follow, Each one of these believes these four things, the physical second coming of Christ, the resurrection from the dead, final judgment, and an eternal state in which believers will be with God and unbelievers will be separated from Him in hell forever. Those four things are are common to all of them. Which is to say, don't let anybody tell you (laughs) that if you don't believe the same school as they do, that you aren't uh, biblical enough or conservative enough. Um, or, or, you know, feel free to let people tell you that your preacher isn't uh, conservative enough because he's not a futurist, but uh, that just means they haven't done their homework. Honestly, is what it means. <clears throat> One last thing before we jump into the text is uh, another reminder about that structure, the outline there. And I've sort of put it in chiastic form. Chiasm is just the Greek word for X. And so that middle part of a chiastic structure is oftentimes the main point or sort of the apex of what's going on. Uh, And then there actually are chiasms within the chiasm here in Revelation. And uh, it's pretty cool stuff. But I, I wanted to point out that where we are today... Where we are in our text today is the high point of Revelation in terms of the theme of Revelation, okay? 11.15 is almost the exact middle of the book. And uh, it, it's, it's a pretty cool um, verse there that we're going to focus on toward the end today. So just as you're reading along, there's some things to, to remember. Uh, and you can, you can notice, if you're being careful in your reading, that there are parallel themes on either side of 11.15 through 19. Uh, that's why you've got sort of A and A prime, B, B prime, C, C1, D, D1, that kind of thing there. So you can, uh, you can read along doing that. We've got some blanks today, so let's uh, go ahead and jump in. Follow along with me if you would. Revelation 11, we're going to go just a section at a time instead of reading the whole thing uh, because we're a little bit short on time. So first little section there. As we jump in, is 11, 1 to 2. Go ahead and read along with me, if you would, please. And we should. There we go. Beautiful. Thank you, AV folks, you heroes. It says this, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. 
This is the temple measured. We talked about that last week. And uh, the, the blanks there uh, in that first section, as a brief recap, just sort of tell you what we talked about uh, last week in basic terms. And it's simply this, that the true church, I think we have this up here, the true church, first two blanks are the true church will be kept secure, that's the second blank, during temporary persecution. That's the basic gist of the first couple of verses there and a lot of what we talked about last week. We talked about the idea that what God's project in creation is, what he's doing with the world, is he's setting up a place where he can live. In other words, he's setting up his temple, a place where he can live and rest. If you think about the seventh day, that's always open. We're living in the seventh day now. So what he's doing with all of creation and with us is he's creating a place where he can live. In fact, Jesus, uh, Paul, talks about us as a, as a building, talks about us as a temple, talks about us as a place where God resides. We talked about a few of those kinds of verses last week. Uh, so that's part and parcel of that idea that the true church has the presence of God in it, which is to say that if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are a part of the church. So the true church will be kept secure during temporary persecution. That's why the measuring happened there, uh, like we talked about last week. Now in 3 through 6, we see the reason why the church is being persecuted. We see the reason why the church is being persecuted, because they're prophetically speaking. Speaking for God. To be a prophet simply means to be a mouthpiece, uh, a spokesperson. It doesn't mean you're Nostradamus who predicts the future. Sometimes in Scripture there is that element. More often than not, there is simply the element of being a spokesperson and a a mouthpiece for God. So that's what we see here in 3 through 6. Read along where we see the two witnesses prophesy. It says this, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Verse 6. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now jump back to verse 3. Verse 3 is a transition that both ends verse 2 and begins verse 4. It sort of fits with both a little bit. But here's where the Apostle John is told by the same voice that's speaking in verses 1 and 2, which is probably Jesus or an angel speaking for God. Some people think that because of the preceding chapter, this is still the angel that's speaking for God. Verse 3 says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Press pause here for a second. There are two witnesses. There are two witnesses for two main reasons. If you're taking notes, the first is this. To establish legitimacy in keeping with the Jewish tradition of having to have two witnesses. You have to have two witnesses to corroborate the truth of any sort of matter, especially in court. So uh, we know this from Deuteronomy 19.15, Matthew 18.16. If you want to look those up later, we've listed those in the study notes. So the, the main reason, the first one, is to establish legitimacy so that it's a true prophetic speaking for God. It's not just some wacko who's talking about things as if they're prophesying and speaking for God. It has to be more than one. That's part of the Jewish tradition. So that's one reason. The second reason 
that we know that there are two, two witnesses here and not just one is because it hearkens back, it, it reminds us back of the two witnesses in the Old Testament who are basically known as the biggest and the baddest prophets of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. There are lots of different theories about who it might be, but most believe, and I think it's probably Moses and Elijah, and we'll see some reasons why later on if you're, if you're uh, catching it as we go along. You see, there's this Jewish tradition that both Moses and Elijah had to return before the Messiah would come. They had to return before the Messiah would come the first time. And uh, this is sort of playing off of that. You want to look up uh, Malachi 4, 4 through 6, Matthew eleven fourteen, and Mark 9, 11 to 13 that sort of illustrate, that picture that tradition from Scripture. Remember we say every once in a while that Scripture interprets Scripture. And that's a good example of this here. Uh, Malachi 4, Matthew 11, and Mark 9, if you're going to look those up later. So, so keep reading. These two witnesses, whose identity we don't really know yet, the symbol of Moses and Elijah is telling us that they're supposed to be like them, but we don't know the identity of these two witnesses. These two are to be true witnesses in keeping with the tradition of Moses and Elijah, and they're granted authority so that, it says this, so that they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Prophecy is C, prophesy is S, just for the record. Without going to a lot of detail because of time, uh, being a prophet like this, A, is going to mean, like the Old Testament prophets, it's going to mean calling people to repentance. It's one of the fundamental things about Old Testament prophets. They called people to repentance. When Jonah spoke for God in Nineveh, he was called to tell the people to repent. He didn't want to. That's what is indicative here of prophesying. And we know that because of this sackcloth image there. Sackcloth is sort of like a burlap bag kind of material uh, that was symbolically worn as a sign of repentance. Uh, it was worn both by prophets who were, were speaking, repent, repent and come back to the Lord. It was also worn by uh, followers of God who were uh, in that kind of mourning space where they realized uh, M-O-U-R, mourning place of realizing that they needed to repent and that they were sorry for their sins. So both of those kinds of things show up a lot in the Old Testament. And that's why, that's why we know that being a prophet like a Moses and Elijah is going to mean calling people to repentance. It's also going to mean, and that's why 1260 days is in there, it's also going to mean it's going to last a while. It's not going to be short. It's going to last a while. But it's not going to be forever. It's a definite period of time. The number 1260 uh, is a way of saying that it will be a definite time, but not forever. Another way to say it is that it, it will be, that prophesying kind of role will be until Jesus returns to finish what God started. So, so being a true witness like Moses and Elijah will mean calling people to repentance for a time. So now verse 4 begins to tell us from another sort of picture in Scripture who these witnesses are. It says this, verse 4, these, meaning the two witnesses, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. This is a, this is a vision that John's receiving that parallels uh, a vision in Zechariah 4. Zechariah 4 is uh, worth you looking up later on. We don't have time to go through all of it, but in Zechariah 4 there's this gold lampstand. It's sort of like a lampstand of lampstands. It's this fancy big gold lampstand that is flanked by two olive trees. 
And there in Zechariah, these trees and this lampstand, don't miss this. They are part of a vision that speaks of being strengthened to rebuild the temple by the power of the Lord. That's a key piece. It's a key piece in the role of these prophets, in the role of faithful witnesses that we're talking about and where we're headed today. They are part of a vision that speaks of being strengthened to rebuild the temple by the power of the Lord. In that vision there, Joshua and Zerubbabel uh, were being strengthened to rebuild the temple by the power of the Lord. So what that means is that here in Revelation, these two witnesses who are preaching repentance, the two witnesses is anyone really who preaches repentance, these two witnesses will be strengthened to carry on the work of God's mission. That's why the parallel in Zechariah is there. These two witnesses will be strengthened to carry on the work of God's mission. So you see, when, when God comes back to earth, and we, until that time, participate in His rebuilding project, when we witness like a true prophet, we are being what Scripture is asking us to be here, like Moses and Elijah, like those true prophets, like the lampstand and the olive trees who are witnesses. So, so when we do that, when we act like those witnesses referred to here in Revelation 11, The kind of power that is coming from us is not ours, but it's God. And that's why verses 5 and 6 show us the sort of great power that is wielded when we prophesy. In other words, when we speak the truth for God. It says this, verse 5, If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Which is a a crazy picture. Uh, Sort of like, you know, when you speak for God, it's fire coming out. And that's the effect... That's the sort of picture when it's something that's done by God and by His Spirit. So when we're speaking truth in a prophetic kind of manner, it's not us speaking, but it's the power of the Gospel. It's the power of repentance that the Old Testament talks about here with sackcloth. It's that kind of power that does the work. This is a reminder here in Revelation. It's a reminder of when Elijah called down the fire and consumed 100 of King Ahaziah's men in 2 Kings, if you want to look this up later, 2 Kings 1, 10 through 12. Fire came down and consumed two sets of 50 of King Ahaziah's men. Then it says this in verse 5, the second half there of 5. It says, if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. In other words, that's what it's like when somebody preaching the gospel encounters opposition. It's an amazing picture. Verse 6 says it this way, a little differently. It says, they have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying and that they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. This is another picture from the Old Testament. This is a picture of Elijah announcing the drought in 1 Kings 17.1. That's in your study notes there. And also Moses turning the waters into blood and announcing the plagues in Exodus, uh, Exodus uh, chapter 7. So to, so to sort of put this all together, and these are the fill-ins for 3 through 6, the prophetic role of the church to speak for God is an unstoppable fire whose power comes from God and cannot be brought under human control. That's the effect. That's the effect of being a witness to the risen Christ as a New Testament believer who understands the gospel. What this means 
is that you needn't fear anyone who opposes you. Revelation is fraught with this cool encouragement like that. Needn't fear anyone who opposes you. Let them tease. Let them mock. Let the militant atheists call you an intellectual slug. Our responsibility is not to change people or try to manipulate the message or to pretty it up so that it looks nice. Your responsibility as a true witness is to preach, most simply, repentance from sin. If you understand anything about the cross and the gospel and His death, burial, and resurrection and His life for us now, if you understand anything but don't have repentance as a part of your gospel message, you are in danger, you're in danger of preaching a little bit of a pseudo-gospel. Because it's sometimes real easy to convert people to my moralism. We've all experienced that. It's real easy. It's real easy to make disciples of me. And of my human moralistic expectations. In fact, a lot of us, for a lot of our growing up years, experience that as if it's life-giving spiritual faith. But it's not. Our responsibility simply as true witnesses is to preach repentance from sin. Without that, we're in danger of preaching a pseudo-gospel. All right, we've got a boogie. Verses, 10, uh, verses 7 through 10, read along about the two witnesses who are defeated. They're, quote, defeated. It says this, verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Come back to verse 7 there. Uh, Briefly, it says, when they have finished their testimony. (laughs) It seems here that, finally, (laughs) Scripture is indeed giving us a picture of something that occurs preceding Jesus' return. Something that's toward the end of time as we know it. This is a picture of of the church's apparent defeat at the end of the time of its witness. That's why it says when they have finished their testimony, then the beast can do its work. Now, it's a picture of the church's apparent defeat at the end of time of its witness, just like it seemed, just like it looked, when Jesus was defeated, when Jesus was crucified. This is a picture of the church's apparent defeat. For a little help from the New Testament, uh, there's a parallel uh, that you can read in Matthew 24, 9 through 22. Uh, Matthew 24, 9 through 22. If you want some mind-bending stuff about the abomination of desolation there, there's some cool stuff to read. Now notice that we meet here the beast for the first time in Revelation. Uh, shows up some 37 or 9 times, something like that in Revelation. So we'll, we'll get to the beast a lot soon. 
Uh, but this is the first time we do this. And you may want to write this down. Uh, we don't have time to explain all of this, but you may want to write this down for your reading this week. The beast represents anti-Christian powers which seek to silence the church's witness. The beast represents anti-Christian powers of any sort, of any stripe, of any practical implication. The beast represents anti-Christian powers which seek to silence the church's witness. Remember, we've been talking about that prophesying role of the church. This is the beast trying to silence the church's witness. And here... By the way, you know it's the church because of 13.7 has a parallel to 11.7 if you want to look that up later. Here the church is made war on by the beast. It says the beast makes war on the witnesses and kills them. And in language that's meant to remind us of Christ's crucifixion, in language that looks and feels and sounds like Christ's crucifixion, verse 8 says, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. In verses 9 to 10, uh, there we see that the watching world, the, the earth dwellers, as they're called in Revelation, the earth dwellers sort of have this party because uh, the annoying prophets are, uh, are finally, annoying prophets are finally dead. Here's what you need to know about this little section here. The beast seems to defeat spiritual truth. <laughs> How often do you feel like that in your everyday life? The beast seems to defeat spiritual truth. In other words, the true prophet, the church, seems defeated by the spiritual forces of evil, just like Christ seemed to be defeated. Point being, and this is the principle in your study notes, the next few fill-ins, point being that life as a faithful witness Life as a faithful witness will involve hardship and pain. Life as a faithful witness will involve hardship and pain. Revelation is saying, bank on it. In fact, Revelation is telling us, get your personal readiness investment in good stead. We don't have a whole lot of time to hang out on this point, but suffice it to say that there is a lot, there is a lot of folks, come time for the beast to defeat the church, who will run scared and will show whose follower they really are. So the question is, the question for us is, are you, am I, getting prepared now? Let me ask it another way. Is your relationship with God strong enough and on the growth trajectory so that you're ready when hardship and pain come? Am I living faithfully now so I am ready for hardship and pain when they come? Because friends, straight up, a lot of vocal Christ followers today run for the hills when it gets hard. been in ministry long enough to watch a lot of folks who talk a good game, but when life happens, they show themselves to be the path, the rocky ground, the thorns. Matthew 13, 1-23. So the question is, am I learning to live faithfully now so I am ready for hardship and pain when they come? Which is, which is a stark reminder for us in Revelation. 
that you don't have all day to sit around and wait to grow up. You don't have all day to fritter away the time that we have. Like, we just got forever to learn to live faithfully. It's a trajectory. Some of us just plain need to hear, grow up and start being faithful. Some of us hardly know it, but we're faithfully living as witnesses to how much we love money, power, control. We're living as faithful witnesses to those things in areas of our lives. God wants to take those areas of your life and redeem them. Faithfully living, many of us, without being aware, as witnesses to our love of money and security and power and sex and and food. The question is, am I living faithfully now so I am ready for hardship and pain when they come? Look at 11 through 14. We see here these two witnesses who seem to be defeated now vindicated says this, 11 through 14. But after the three and a half days, in other words, a short time, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour... There was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Verses 11 to 12 are uh, simply making the point that it won't be long after the witnesses are defeated that God will raise them from the dead. This restoration refers back uh, to a few things, but Ezekiel 37 is a cool passage where God raises up a spiritual army and restores them to life. You might want to also read, uh, in addition to Ezekiel 37, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18 for another New Testament parallel here. When it refers to the cloud, it's trying to make the point that God is the one doing this, that His presence is there, just like He did with Jesus in His ascension in Acts 1.9. Verse 13 uses these symbolic numbers to say that uh, a lot of folks, that many were killed in the great earthquake, could be exact. It might not be. We don't know. I tend to think it's just uh, relative to the other numbers used in the same passage. A lot of people are going to uh, be killed in this earthquake. To summarize 11 through 14, here's the main point. These are the next few blanks there. Persecution to the point of death cannot stop a faithful witness. Persecution of any stripe, in any form, of any manner, of any amount of suffering and pain, even to the point of death, cannot stop a faithful witness. Friends, bearing, bearing witness till the Lord returns, till His kingdom fully comes to earth, regardless of how you measure its meaning or its effectiveness, 
bearing witness, will do what God says. It's why Paul can say with confidence in Romans 8, which is a fabulous passage, in Romans 8.31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? The evil one killing us cannot do it. Anyone else mocking you for your faith cannot do it. Faithful witness cannot and will not be stopped. That's, that's the message that gives us the confidence to say if, if God is for us, like Paul says, then who can be against us? Lastly, verses 15 through 19, at long last, at least since chapter 6, give us again what it looks like at the very end of time. This is the seventh trumpet. It says this, verses 15 through 19, if you want to follow along. It says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Not who was and who is to come, just who is and who was. We'll point something about that later. For You have taken Your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but Your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding Your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear Your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Verse 19, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Finally, we come to the end of the seven trumpets. Which means that today we end a long section about the seven trumpets that goes from 8-6 all the way through today's passage. Uh, from Revelation 8-6 with the first trumpet all the way through today. This is also a parallel here to Revelation 6-12 through 17. Uh, it's what we call a recapitulation. It's stating the same thing again, but a bit from a different vantage point. Uh, that happens a lot in Revelation. Uh, so you'll, you'll see a beast in a few chapters and think, is that the same beast? Is this a different beast? You'll see a woman. You'll see a prostitute. You'll see all these different things happening, uh, and it'll be sometimes the same thing from a different vantage point. That's what's happening here in this passage. Revelation 6, 12 through 17 tells us the same thing, but from a different angle. So this is the second picture of the end of time. This is the second picture of the end that we have seen in Revelation, but this is one, unlike Revelation 6, that is without the judgment. This is one without the judgment. And as we talked about in the outline, this is sort of the, the middle, the chiastic middle, the apex of the book in terms of its theme. This is the trumpet that heralds the second coming of Christ. Which means that the song the saints sing in verses 17 and 18, and really also verses 15, the song the saints sing is sung to the one who is and who was, but no longer the one who is to come. Scripture is so cool. It leaves out the word that's always there except here because he was, he is, but he's no longer the one to come. Because the one who to come has come. He's 
already here at this point here. The main idea, simply put, is that when the trumpet sounds, God's kingdom has fully come. And He will reign forever. Revelation 11.15 is the point of all history. Certainly the cross. The cross was fundamental to our being able to enjoy the end of history. But if God doesn't finish what He started, would He be faithful to His own character and nature? No. But 11.15 is the aim and the goal of, of all history. This is the song, this is the song of the saints. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. Which simply means the question we have is, will you be singing this song? Will you be singing this song? And does your life now... Join in this chorus. Does your life now join in this chorus of 17 and 18, which says, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. If that idea doesn't charge you up, then maybe your kingdom is what your goal is. This is a song where the goal is His kingdom. The goal is His glory. The goal is His purpose. That's what Revelation is opening up to us to be aware of. Today, now, until that day, does your heart sing along with that song of thankfulness? Does your heart resonate with the praise of Lord God Almighty? Does your heart resonate with that kind of praise? Lord God.